us toward the end of Amen. Because we get up in the dark. All right. Take your Bibles and turn to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 2. And uh, Peter has been talking to us about how we can make our calling and election sure, knowing that if we grow in our faith, we will never fall. And talking about how we need to commit ourselves to the word of the scriptures, which the prophets revealed to us the word of God. And then as we began chapter two, you will remember he showed us that just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, so there will be false teachers in the New Testament age. And there were among these believers in Asia And we saw last time how there are to be false teachers among us, too, in our day. And the false teaching in Peter's day, or at least the false teaching in the church to which he was writing, clearly has to do with teaching that the final judgment is not going to take place, that there is no such thing, and denying the second coming of Christ and the judgment of God. And the irony is in Second uh, Peter chapter two, those first three verses is not only is the judgment going to come, but it's going to begin with those who say there's not a judgment coming. So Peter is saying the judgment is going to come, and especially upon those who are teaching us there's no judgment coming. That's a, a wicked teaching to remove all sense of God's judgment and of the second coming of Christ from the church and from the culture. So these teachers, he says, will always be among you. And the question for us is, what do we do with these teachers? How do we respond? And the question is, are you going to be taken in by this false teaching yourselves? And Peter's very concerned about the church, that they not lose their minds and lose their hearts, lose their souls, lose their ultimate lives, that they not be taken up with this teaching. It's very, very dangerous teaching, very wicked, very sinister. And then as we move to verse 4 today we see that Peter then begins to address the reality of God's judgment. And that's what we're going to read today. Let's take a look at verses 4 through the first half of verse 10. We're going to add 10a to our reading uh, today. Second Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who is distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul, by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Amen. So we're seeing here that Peter is teaching that indeed the judgment is coming, that God is a God of judgment, but he also is a God of salvation, a God who rescues his people out of that judgment. And he's showing, first of all, there is going to be a judgment. And secondly, he's showing, don't be afraid. If you belong to the Lord, you're safe. 
Where you're not saved is when you go along with the false teaching that pervades not only our society, but even the church of our day, as it did the church of Peter's day. Let's, let's look at this in, in a couple of categories. Uh, what we're going to notice is that Peter is using uh, an argument that uh, he's, he's showing us that if God did it in the Old Testament, he is going to do it today, too, because God is the same yesterday, today and forever. So if you look at verses four all the way through nine or rather through eight, you'll see that he's making and he's simply showing us something about what's happening in the Old Testament. Then when you get to verse nine, he says, if that is so, that is, if God were that way in the Old Testament, you can count on him being that way in, in our own age. So he's giving us some conditions, showing us the Old Testament. Then he's making his point. Now, what we want to do, first of all, in verses 4 through 8, is see that history displays God's judgment and salvation. He says, for if God did certain things in the Old Testament, then he will certainly do it in the New. And the first point is he does do it in the Old Testament. History does display God's judgment and his salvation. These false leaders were skeptical about Christ's coming judgment. And Peter is going to show that God is a God of judgment. Now, this, this thinking, way of thinking, is very common. I find it all the time. Uh, if you take one thing that separates the sort of Bible-believing or Bible-committed church from those who hold it in skepticism, one of the things always is whether there's going to be a second coming of Christ with judgment. It's the separation of a, of a God who never works miracles from a God who has worked miracles. And the ultimate miracle at the end will be when Christ returns in all of his glory and that we are, we are taken up to be with him. We're transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, says Paul. And that final glory is what's promised us in the Scriptures. You'll find one part of the church believes it and one part of the church doesn't. It says it's metaphorical. And it's just a story to sort of encourage us like the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus or something like that. And so you'll find in a lot of the church today that the second judgment is avoided. You'll find even in Bible-believing churches that, that preachers don't enjoy talking about it. I don't enjoy talking about it, to be honest with you. It's, it's a hard doctrine. It's very difficult. Even this past week, one of the precious little ones in our own congregation asked me about a friend of hers who's not a Christian. And she says, Pastor Sandy, oh, why is it fair that she would go to hell? These are difficult things for you as a father or, or as a, an uncle or a grandfather or me as a pastor to answer uh, our little children. But they must be answered to our little children. They must have the truth. And the truth is there is a judgment of God upon the earth. And Jesus Christ is coming to execute that final judgment. And if we are wise people, we live in the light of that reality. At the same time, we live in the light of the reality that God is rescuing from that judgment the people who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Well, let's, let's look at this uh, in two ways, historically, from the Old Testament in these five verses, 4, 5, 6, and 7, and 8. First of all, we're going to see that God judges the wicked. In a few moments, we'll see that he rescues the righteous in the Old Testament. But first of all, let's look at these three Old Testament examples of how God did judge the wicked. And Peter simply reminding them of what their Torah was teaching them. And the first one has to do with sinful angels. He did not spare angels when they sinned. 
Now, you'll notice that there is no uh, case here of uh, he talks about the judgment of the angels, but he doesn't talk about salvation of the angels. In the other cases, there's a case of judgment and a case of being rescued. But we know that angels, of course, there is no salvation plan for angels. That's what's so amazing about being a human being. You can actually be saved. But here on the judgment side, he did not spare angels when they sin. Now, this goes back to Genesis 6. If you want to leave your finger in Second Peter, turn with me to Genesis 6. And there's a there's sort of a weird little story that we have a hard time understanding. And when we studied Genesis some years ago in Amen, we didn't have an easier time understanding it either. But then on page 19 of your Bible, Genesis 6, verse 1, when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now, when you study that text, of course, you have to figure out, who are these sons of God and these daughters of men? And they're different speculations. Some would say that the sons of God were the sons of the faithful line uh, and the daughters of men were the daughters of the pagans, the ones who were not in God's faithful line and that there was a mixed marriage there. That's what some would say, that it was what the Bible teaches against unequal yoking in marriage. But you'll, you'll notice that uh, there's another actual teaching, and that is that the sons of God may very well be heavenly beings, angels. There's something weird going on here where spiritual beings came in the form of uh, human men and engaged sexually with those who were the, the daughters of the unbelievers or the daughters of this world. Now, that is seemingly, now if you turn back to Second Peter, that is seemingly what is being discussed here. And I'll tell you why. If you look at some intertestamental material, that is material that was very well known to the Jewish community, that was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament, like one of these books is called First Enoch. If you look at First Enoch 6, these are the words you see about this event. In those days when the children of man had multiplied, it happened that there were born unto them handsome and beautiful daughters, and the angels... The children of heaven saw them and desired them, and they said to one another, Come, let us choose wives for ourselves from among the daughters of man and beget us children. Now, frankly, it is these kinds of references that caused some in the early church to be a little slow to accept both Second Peter and Jude as canonical. The reason was there were references to this intertestamental material. And as you know, one thing that makes the Old Testament books of the Bible, clearly canonical to us, is they're cited in the New Testament. I think every book but one, perhaps, is cited. In, I think maybe uh, Esther is the only one that's not cited in the New Testament. It's very rare that you have an Old Testament book that's not, not cited there. And so when you have then these uh, uh, other books that are non-canonical, in, written between the Old Testament and New Testament cited, then uh, you find people getting a little nervous. Uh, but those intertestamental books are not necessarily wrong. 
They're just simply not inspired by God. They're not inerrant. But they're not necessarily wrong. And certainly what they do show is the contemporary understanding of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. So Peter is addressing a people who would have interpreted Genesis 6, 1 through 4 in this way because that's how their rabbis taught them. And what you get in this intertestamental material is how the rabbis actually taught. This is what they were, they were saying. Some of it was correct and some of it wasn't. But we believe from Second Peter that that was correct. And this was the general thinking of those to whom Peter was writing. So he's saying the sinful angels were judged. And look at the language that's used. Two things are said about them. First of all, they are confined. God sent them to hell, it says. Now, let's stop just a moment. The word for hell is normally Gehenna. This is not Gehenna. This is a word Tartarosis, or we could call it Tartarus. And it is a word that was used commonly in Greek literature to speak about the underworld. So it wasn't the place of final judgment. It was a place of confinement. And Peter, once again, is using some contemporary language to relate to his hearers. And this is another thing that throws people off. Sometimes they think Peter couldn't have written this because it has to do with Greek literature. Well, Greek, uh, Peter wasn't a dummy. And these were common phrases that were used among uh, the Gentiles. And so he just simply uses a phrase they're, they're used to. God sent them to the underworld, putting them into gloomy dungeons. So they are being confined. And you find the same kind of thing. For example, leave your finger there and turn over just a few books in your Bible to Jude. This will be page 2049. Jude, who was, we believe, a half-brother of Jesus, wrote this one chapter, and he uses some of the same ideas. In verse 6, he says, In the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, Jude 6, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So Jude is saying, these angels who sinned are in the underworld. They're in a place of confinement. They're bound with chains. Just like Satan, we're told in the Scriptures, is bound. He doesn't have free reign to do whatever he wants to do. He cannot keep the nations from believing in Jesus Christ. He cannot blind them as he used to do. And that's the reason that the great enterprise of world missions is having tremendous effect around the world because Satan is blind. He is, he is bound. Well, here you have the same sort of thing. And Peter is saying, this is true of the angels. So he has shown his, not only his willingness, but his determination to judge all that is evil. And secondly, they await judgment. They are to be held for judgment. So now they are confined and then they will be judged. And that final judgment will take place at God's appointment. Now, secondly, the second example, if you look in verse 5a, he speaks of the antediluvian world, the world before the flood. That's what antediluvian, before the flood world means. He says in verse 5 that if he did not spare the ancient world. And notice that this was a universal judgment. If he did not spare, that is, there's no escape. The flood came upon, we're told, the entire known world. So he's making it clear that this judgment of God applies to every single human being. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, we read these words, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Hebrews text I've cited there, Hebrews 9.27, it says it is appointed once for man to die and then to face the judgment. So all human beings, all men will die. And then, says the Scriptures, they will face judgment. So it is absolutely inevitable. It is unavoidable. No one will escape from it. Everyone will be judged. This is so important for us to think about for a moment. Can we just pause here? When you think about it, everyone in your family, everyone you work with, everyone in this city, every one of our neighbors is going to be judged. And the Bible teaches us there are only two possible outcomes. One is that we are judged in Christ and we are received into heavenly glory. And the other is we'll be confined to hell whether it be everlasting punishment. When Jesus has the entire world come before him in judgment, he shows in Matthew 25, on his right will be the sheep and on his left will be the goats and there are no geep. There's nothing in between. It's either sheep or goats. And so every single human being will be a sheep or a goat. Every single human being that you know will either be admitted into heaven or will be thrown into hell. Every single one of them. And this is a major concern, of course, on all of our hearts always. As we think about evangelism, as we think about our own lives, this is the ultimately urgent issue in life. It is universal. There is no escape. Secondly, notice that it is an irreversible judgment. He speaks of when he brought the flood. Uh, He did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood, and the flood was irreversible. When you drown, you drown. There's no coming back. And uh, judgment is that way. And you have this great example of it in Luke chapter 16, where uh, Jesus tells the story about Lazarus and the rich man. And uh, the, uh, Lazarus is asking that he, or the, the rich man rather, is telling him to tell his brothers uh, so that they will be warned. And Jesus makes a statement that there is a chasm between heaven and hell that cannot be bridged. There's no going back and forth between the two. So once that judgment is made, it is final and it is irreversible. That's the nature of the judgment of God. And thirdly, notice, see, it was a deserved judgment. He brought the flood on its ungodly people. So when you look in the days of Noah, you find that the wickedness of mankind had come up to its uh, fullness And God's patience had been exhausted, and he now reacts against the sinfulness and wickedness of humankind. And there will be a day when that's happening again, when he saves all of his people, all of his elect, and when his patience has been exhausted against the wickedness of humankind, once again, he will judge the world. He he promised he would never judge again by water, so it will not be by flood. As we will see in 2 Peter 3, it will be by fire. And he will judge the entire world. It will be universal, irreversible, and it is deserved because we are ungodly people by nature. And we tend to grade on the curve. When we think about our friends who are not Christians, we say, I just can't imagine God would judge them because, frankly, they're a better person than I am. And a lot of us could say that about people we know who are not Christians. Sometimes they're more moral than our Christian friends are. You trust them in business more than you do some people who are calling themselves Christians out there. And you say, you know, this this isn't fair. Let me tell you, it's not fair for anybody to go to heaven. That's what's not fair. 
everybody, including the nicest human being you've ever known, you've ever known, deserves to go to hell. Why? Because they've fallen short of obedience to God's word. Every one of them, even the nicest, most gentlemanly person, ladylike person, has fallen short of God's commands and have willfully disobeyed him. Every single human being. And when we have children, they are just like us from the moment that they come out of the womb, in case you haven't noticed. They are willful, self-centered. They want their own way. They are selfish. And you'll find out they're violent. All you need are two children to prove that. And when that second one comes along, boom, 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 boom. We protect ourselves, defend ourselves, promote ourselves. That's the way that we're made. And that is because of uh, evil, wickedness in our hearts, rank evil. So we are saying that the entire world is that way. And God is saving people out of grace, not because they're better than somebody else. And you find this, of course, in the texts that are being mentioned here in Romans 3. You have Paul's grand argument about the pagans, about the moral pagans, the moral Jewish people and the religious Jewish people. Whether you're religious or non-religious, Paul says, Romans 1 through 3, that God has shut every mouth so that all of us realize we can't defend ourselves. And then Romans 3, 23, all have fallen short, uh, 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 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And uh, you find it true also in 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. So what you earn, your wages from your sin is death. If you sin a little bit, the wages are death. If you sin a whole lot, the wages are death. The wages are death all across the board. And there's nothing that could be clear in the Scriptures. You find it in Ephesians 2. Paul, when he's describing natural human beings, we are children of wrath. We're born, in, we're born into this world under judgment. We were ever since Adam and Eve sinned. And, and human nature was changed. We morphed into sinners. Our very nature is to sin. That's our intuitive inclination from the womb, from conception, is to sin. Therefore, when you look at your neighbor who doesn't trust in Christ, don't think in your mind, are they better than I am or better than some Christians I know? That's not the point. We're all bad. And we're like a bunch of ants wondering who's the tallest. Well, they're shorter than I am. Well, they're not really a bad ant because they're really big. And an elephant comes by. And you go, well, we're all ants. And this is the problem when we start making these human judgments. We're we're little ants. Piss ants. (laughs) Judging each other. And grading on the curve. And thinking somebody else is better. And we're not. We're all sinners. And the amazing thing is that God saves a piss ant. That's what he's done. He's drawn us out of the fires. It's an amazing thing. It's undeserved. It has nothing to do with anything in us. So when you think about the judgment of God on the world, first of all, start with the condition of the world and the condition of human nature. And that's the reason that we've got Iraq and Afghanistan and and all of our internal wars and all of our ripoffs in the marketplace that keep sending us soaring back and forth from one decade to another. I mean, just go through... Go through the past five decades, and every one of them you'll find at least one major financial economic catastrophe from human greed. Where's all that come from? Our nature. We do this naturally. We're good at this. Every human being, by nature. 
So it was a deserved judgment. What was undeserved about the flood was that Noah ended up in the ark. That's what was undeserved. The judgment was deserved. And you cannot begin to understand what Jesus Christ has done for his people until you get this straight. You can't understand the love of God until you get this straight. I was talking to a, a woman one time. That, uh, she was a pastor of a, a Christ Unity Church. This was in Chattanooga. And, uh, you know, they were popping up all over the country. And I just want to know what Christ Unity Church believes. So I just called her up. I said, Dawn, this is uh, Sandy Wilson. She introduced herself. Her name was Dawn. And uh, I said, could you tell me what you believe? I'm just, I don't know much about the Christ Unity Church. She said, we believe in love. <laughs> I said, that's great. I said, uh, tell me about it. She said, well, she said, we just believe that God loves everybody and we love each other and we're supposed to love and that the whole idea of, of Jesus is just love. And uh, I said, well, what do you do uh, with the text in the scripture that talk about judgment? And she said, well, we think the Bible speaks primarily about love. And uh, I said, well, what do you do? with the verses that have Jesus talking about judgment and sending people to everlasting punishment. And I referred to a, a verse in, in Matthew 25. She said, well, that does present a little bit of a problem. <laughs> I want to suggest that if you try to take all that is true about God and shove it into one doctrine, you're going to pervert that doctrine. And that's what you do. You pervert love when you try to take everything about God and just shove it, cram it into that one doctrine. And that's going to be the only one you've got. You even distort his love. You do not know how loving he really is until you know that in his very being, he hates sin. He hates it. With a passion. And then you see that he loves you. Now you're beginning to understand love. You're a sinner. And can I say it? He not only hates sin, he hates sinners. And he loves you. Go figure. It's called grace. Now you're getting close to understanding grace. And that's the reason the Bible says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's not amazing that he hated Esau. Esau was a sinner. Now he was a better, you know, he was a better man than Jacob was, but he was a sinner. Jacob was less of a man than Esau was, in my opinion. And God loved him. Why? I don't know, except for one reason, to display the glory of his grace, that he loves sinners somehow. That's a, meant to be an oxymoron, that God broke. It's meant to be a contradiction in terms, that God loves sinners? Go figure that. And the only way you can understand that oxymoron is by grace. Grace dissolves the oxymoron and helps us understand it. So you've got to deal with God as a true judge. He is a faithful judge. He's a very good judge. Nothing escapes his notice. He hears all the evidence and he draws perfect inferences. And even more than that, he already knows what they're thinking. He doesn't have to infer. He knows intuitively everything. He's the perfect judge and he's not a coward. And he, he, he's not Casper Milktoast. And he's, he's not weak. And he's not lacking courage. He judges truly. And that's what the Old Testament is showing us, that he judged sinful angels. He judged the antediluvian world 
What makes you think, says Peter, he's not going to judge you and those around you? Do you think that he's not a perfect judge? Do you think maybe over the decades or the centuries of the millennium, he's lost a little bit of his, you know, he's getting a little old, lost a little bit of his vigor? Do you think maybe he's forgetful? He's getting a little Alzheimer's or something? Do you think this is not the same God? That's what Peter is saying. Look at the third example. He says, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? If he condemned, verse 6, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, made them an example. He made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Well, what about you? First of all, you see, it was a painful judgment. It was burning with ashes. That doesn't sound too happy to me. And in the New Testament, with Jesus Christ, what do you find over and over again? This phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's something that's unpleasant. Gentlemen, I take no delight in this. This is the reason that I and other preachers who believe this don't preach on it very often. Because I'm sure that if we balance our preaching, we tend toward things that make us feel good. Make you feel good. Even those of us who preach expositionally come across a text like this. How can you avoid it? It's right there. Better not avoid it. And we're not today, are we? It's a painful judgment. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And notice it was an exemplary judgment. He made them an example. Peter says this Sodom and Gomorrah affair wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah. It was you. He was telling you that when the city is like this, God's judgment rests on it. And he's going to do something about it. So he made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. You find in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Paul says these things were written for us as examples. And Peter is simply reminding them about the Bibles they hold in their own hands. That this is what you have there. So why are you listening to these false teachers? And I'm asking you right now, why are you listening? To false teachers that are all around us, they're in the church, they're writing books, bestsellers. Why are you listening to them? Why are you having them inform your conscience? When the Bible that you hold in your hand is telling you, this is the way God is. He is a judge. And He did it in the old, and He'll do it in the new, and He'll do it tomorrow. Because that is who He is. He's a perfect judge. And notice, not only, then, of course, that God judges the wicked. But B, he rescues the righteous. And let's look at the two examples given here, Noah and Lot. He protected Noah. He rescued Lot. We find in verse 5B and verses 7 and 8. So you see, we're looking now at the other side of his case that he's making about the Old Testament. The case he's making is, if it's true in the Old Testament, it's true today. And in the Old Testament, he did two things. He judged the wicked and he saved the righteous. That's who he is. He's a judging God and a saving God. You don't understand salvation without judgment. And so let's look, first of all, at Noah. He was a preacher of righteousness. That is, he preached what he practiced. Now, frankly, his being a preacher is not mentioned in the Old Testament. This comes from Jewish tradition also, but it makes sense. I believe that the teachers in those intertestamental books Uh, were correct. Noah was a righteous man. He was building an ark. Do you think no one ever asked him what in the world he was doing with this ark that was about the length of a football field? What you got there in your backyard, Noah? Oh, just fooling around. No? I'm sure he explained what he was doing. Well, I had a vision the other night. 
going to be a big flood. Boy, I'll say, Noah, it's going to be a big flood with a boat like that. What are you going to put in that boat, Noah? Oh, two by two, going to gather up every animal of the entire kingdom. Well, that's going to be a, what you doing that for, Noah? Well, it's going to be such a big flood, it's going to just destroy everything. Really, Noah? That's quite something. Honey, Noah's losing his mind down the street. That's the way it went. But Noah wasn't ashamed of the vision that he had. God told him, and you know what? This wild, crazy thing called a universal flood happened. Noah was right. The crazy man down the street was correct. You know who the crazy man is today? You. And what, what Peter is saying is, one day everybody's going to say, you know that crazy man down the street talked about fire and brimstone and judgment coming and the need to be saved? You're going to go, whoop, you know, get raptured right up into the heavens to be with Jesus, all this crazy stuff. He's right. That's exactly what's going to happen someday. But meanwhile, until that happens, you're the crazy man down the street. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, we often say, you know, so-and-so is a really good man because he practices what he preaches. And I believe in that. You should be the same man on Monday that you are on Sunday. Uh, and what, what, what the, the opposite is true as well. You should preach what you practice. And some people think, well, you know, my sermon is just what, the way I live my life. Now, if you just live your life in accord with the Scriptures, never say a word about why you're living that life. never comes to light. No one ever asks you a question, or if they do, you avoid it. You evade it. And you don't give an honest answer about why you're living the life. It's just you're going to just live the life. Now, let me ask you a question. Who gets credit for that life? You. Because the only interpretation for the great life you're living is that you're just a really cool guy. You know, you got it together. Got your act together. You're very civil, upright, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. You're a good Boy Scout. And uh, good for you. Goody two-shoes. You know, you made it. And you're the one who gets credit. But when you live a life that is reflective of the gospel and you interpret that life, especially when called upon by God's providence in relationships, you're giving Him the glory for that life. And Noah was a man who preached what he practiced. You want to know why I'm building this ark? Because you need to be saved as well. And the only reason I'm building is because God, out of His sheer grace, is rescuing those who will trust in His judgments and trust in His salvation. So we preach what we practice as well as practice what we preach, and that's what Noah did. And you'll see these texts that I put down here uh, in Paul's writings. Those are the examples where, where Paul uses himself as an example. And here is one way in which we preach what we practice. Paul said seven times in his letter something equivalent to this. Come, imitate me. Come, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. And Paul was basically saying, if you'll follow me, you're going to run into Jesus. Just come follow me. He used his life. It was an imperfect life. It was still a sinful life. But it was a redeemed life that was going from glory to glory. It was a changing life. It was a Christian life. And he simply says, come do what I'm doing. Come follow me. Take me as an example. You're going to run into Jesus. And that's exactly what the church has to be able to say today. It's what men need to be able to say. Is, come, just copy me. Can you say to someone who's a little younger than you are, who's got a dating relationship with a woman, and just say, come, and my wife and I will talk to you about how we deal with each other. We'll talk to you about our dating life. Or someone who's young married, can you just invite them into your home and say, just come and observe us. You can just stay with us for a week and see how we live married life together. We want to model it for you. Can you say that? A little scary, isn't it? 
That's the kind of life we're to be living so that we can preach out of that life. Here's the way the Apostle Paul put it. He said, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for his sake. So as part of his gospel that he was the servant of the church. It was actually what he preached. Christ is Lord and I'm his and your servant. That's, part, that's his gospel. And your gospel must be the same. Christ is Lord. I'm his servant and yours. And I can help you find him. And my life will speak to you. We've got to be living lives like that. And that's the kind of man Noah was because of the grace of God. Notice he discipled his family. The text says, and seven others. In fact, the literal translation could be, as the King James Version has it, he saved Noah the eighth person. Noah's called the eighth person. Why? Because seven others were saved. Who were those seven others? His family. So Noah was able to convince his own family. Now, we're going to study Lot in a moment. Lot wasn't able to convince his sons-in-laws. Of course, we all know sons-in-laws are mooseheads. And uh, Lot, I mean, you know, any of you who have been one, you know you're a moosehead. You have to admit it. You were not good enough to marry her. And if anybody knows that, it's her father. You're a moosehead. And uh, Lot's sons-in-laws didn't listen to him, but Noah's did. Noah discipled his family. And he must have had moose heads for sons-in-laws too, but he was able to work with them. He loved them, had a relationship with them, and he cultivated them. He discipled them. And Noah was, was a righteous man because he did disciple his family. How about you? You'll see in the text, uh, in the text that I've mentioned there, Deuteronomy chapter 6, that we are to train our children. Ephesians 6, 4, we're to train our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, and Titus 1 and 6, those who lead in the church are to be men who manage their household well. How can you govern in the church when you don't govern your own family well? So the, the family is the key laboratory testing place for your leadership. And so if you're a husband, you should be gently, respectfully, as a partner, leading your wife spiritually. If you're a father, likewise. Uh, if you're a single, then every opportunity where you have to lead, you set the pace. If it's in a dating relationship, you set the pace spiritually for that relationship. Take responsibility for it from the beginning. You're not that woman's leader because you're not married to her. But you have a relationship, and you can lead in the relationship. And that is exactly what Noah was doing, discipling his family. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was a righteous man. Then look in verses 7 and 8, where we're speaking, remember, of Sodom and Gomorrah that was destroyed by fire and brimstone. God turned that place to ashes. Why? Well, because Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, the very word sodomy comes from Sodom. It was from the weird, sexual, rampant behavior of those from Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot had two visitors in his house, and the men in Sodom wanted to have sex with those male visitors in Lot's house. That's the reason fire and brimstone came up upon Sodom and Gomorrah, because they had abandoned uh, all uh, even natural revelation about how man is made. And in Lot's case, he's called a righteous man. But if you have a memory for Genesis 19, you might be a little surprised. Lot, a righteous man? 
Lot was the one who chose to live in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, Lot and Abraham's men were arguing with each other, so they decided to split ways, and Abraham, Abraham let him choose where he wanted to go. He said, I'll go down there. Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was the one who chose it. Lot was the one who got drunk, had sex with his two, uh, two daughters. And we ended up with a couple of uh, tribes out of that uh, sexual union. Lot was the one who, when the men of Sodom were banging on the door trying to get these two visitors, he offered his daughters. You call this a righteous man? Well, I'll just show you that it's all relative, doesn't it? Uh, even a righteous man like Noah or Paul or Lot are not unflawed men. Jacob, you know, certainly was not considered a perfect man either. Lot wasn't either. But once again, if you look at the intertestamental literature, and here I've cited a book named Wisdom and a book named First Clement, you will see how the uh, first century Jewish tradition taught about Lot. And here's what First Clement 11.1 1 says, and I'll just read this for you. Because of his hospitality and godliness, Lot was saved from Sodom when the entire region was judged by fire and brimstone. So Lot is given credit for his hospitality. He's the one, you remember, who took those two visitors in. He knew that Sodom was a dangerous place. And he begged them to stay in his house. If you remember in Genesis 19, that's the reason they were there. They ended up being two angels. We didn't know that. But they were, they were taken in by Lot's hospitality. And that was one of the main things that impressed the Jewish tradition about Lot's character. He was a very hospitable person. And these other flaws, you know, were not, were not uh, seen as disqualifying. So, and Lot was the one who at least tried to protect the integrity of his visitors from being assaulted by the neighboring uh, drunken crowd. So Lot gets credit for that. And Lot also was the one who fled Sodom when he was told to. The two angels that he took in said to him, you've got to get out of here. God's judgment's coming on this city. And Lot believed them. Now, Lot's wife, he turned back and she turned back and turned into a pillar of salt. Uh, too bad for her, huh? But Lot kept his eyes on where he was going. He left Sodom and did not let his heart turn back. And he fled from there and believed the word of God's judgment. That was one thing that made him righteous. He was hospitable. He protected the two visitors. And he believed in God's judgment. Whereas the teachers in Peter's day were not believing it. This is just his point. That righteousness consists of believing in God's judgment. And then notice this phrase about him in verse 8. Uh, or rather, verse 7. That he was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. That word filthy is a word that's often used for sexual immorality. And by the way, it's so interesting in our day in which uh, we're debating much about uh, the role of homosexuality in society that we try to airbrush what was happening in Sodom and try to say, you know, the real problem with the Sodomites is that they were inhospitable. That's, that's what many are saying. It's really not a sexual sin at all. But the whole thing is redolent with sexual immorality, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament interpretation of what was going on there. But you'll notice that Lot was, he was distressed by the sexually immoral lives or the filthy lives of lawless men. And then notice in verse 8, For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul 
by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. So you see here one of the characteristics of a saved person, a righteous person, is that he is distressed by what he sees and hears. He's tormented by the evils in his own society. And I've cited here the text Acts seventeen sixteen. That's when Paul goes into Athens and he looks for the first time at all these idols. And we're told that he was distressed. The word is a Greek word from which we get the word apoplectic. He was apoplectic when he saw the idols that were being worshipped there. That is displacing the glory of God with the, with the shame of these false gods. And the very mark of a godly man is one who bears the burden. And sometimes we just go with the crowd because we're tired of carrying the burden. We're tired of the dissonance in our own souls about what's ideal, what ought to be, and what actually is. And there's a great tension there that you carry. We're tired of being strange. We're tired of being the weird guy down the street. We're tired of the difference between us and some people that we happen to like a lot who have different moral standards. We're tired of the stress and the tension. But a righteous man takes on the burden. And he takes it on because that's exactly the burden that Jesus Christ bore for us. In his patience and love, he lived out his life in the midst of a very wicked world. And what's being said about Lot, so did he. Lot was one of very few, himself and his wife, and she was perhaps even hypocritical. Lot was, and Noah was one of very few, eight people who believed in the judgment of God. Think about the burden of carrying that unique perspective about the world over and over and over again for tens of years of adult life. And what Peter is saying is, with all these false teachings going on, these false teachings are meant to soothe your flesh and to make Christianity acceptable to the world, to remove the myth and the unbelievable from the Christian gospel so that your found is more acceptable, to remove the ethical portions like sexual morality so that we can fit in with everybody else. That's what false teaching is all about, to make it more comfortable and acceptable to live in this world. And Peter is saying, not on your life. Because when you look at the judgments of God in history, you'll notice that men always had to stand with a few other men for what was right and true and good and beautiful. And it will always be that way. So that's what he's saying here, is that he was burdened by societal evils. You go ahead and be burdened too. And it's a manly thing when sometimes you just want to sit down like Ezra and pull the hair out of your head. And sometimes you just want to pour ashes on your head. Or sometimes you just want to weep. And sometimes the prophets would just Sit down and weep over what's going on. That's what happens to a righteous man. Because why? Our day has not yet come. But it is coming. And until it comes, we find ourselves in this distress. That's a sign of a righteous man. Now, look at verses 9 and 10 and we see this. History not only displays God's judgment and salvation, history proves God's future judgment and salvation. If it was so then, he's saying, then look at now. What do you think? God will rescue the righteous in verse 2, 9a. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men. He knows how to do this. 
He's good at it. He's done it before. He'll do it again. And if he, if he spared Lot in all of his confusion and his mixed life, he still was a righteous man. He believed in the judgment of God. He still was holding up the fort. He was still being hospitable and trying to protect people. If he did it with Lot and spared him and somehow got him out of a city that was going to burn with fire and brimstone, I believe he can get you out of this world that's going to burn up. If he got Noah out of a world that was being flooded with water, blah, 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 everybody's gone except for Noah and his family, I believe he can save you. So he will rescue, God will rescue the righteous. The Lord knows how to do this. He will rescue us from final judgment. And you find these texts in the scriptures which teach this, that you will persevere. God does not write unfinished symphonies. That there is nothing that can separate us, Romans 8, 38 and 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. So nothing will separate us from Him. No final judgment will keep us from Him. He will rescue us from apostasy, present apostasy. There's no temptation common to man. But what is common to man, says 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And God will provide a way of escape. So God is going to preserve you when you're in Christ. He's going to provide for you a way of escape. And he's going to use your trials, Romans 5, James 1, 1 Peter 1. He's going to use your trials to strengthen your faith. And as you go through the trials of false teaching, you go through the challenge of the great lies that come to us, and you persevere through them by his grace, you'll find yourself getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And I tell you, I'm finding this true in my own life. As every year goes by, I get more and more convinced and I just find more and more as I trace down the, the, the apostasies and I trace down the heresies and I trace down the false religions and I actually study them, the more I look at them, the more I'm convinced of the foolishness of everything that denies Jesus Christ as Lord. Absolute foolishness. It's leading us nowhere but destruction. So you will find that as, as you go on, you'll go on from strength to strength as you follow him. So God will rescue and he will, verses 9b and 10a, he will punish the unrighteous. Once again, he says they are held for punishment, just like the angels. And to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. He's holding them. They are confined and constrained. They're held in detention. And they are going to be punished. They're being punished now while continuing their punishment. So there's a. There's a punishment that they can even begin to taste, just like you can begin to taste your salvation by the down payment of the spirit. There's a down payment for the wicked. And they can taste the judgment coming. They can sense the depression of it all. It's the reason it leads so many who think about it to suicide. Thirdly, some are punished more severely. He says this is especially true, verse 10, of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. So there'll be even greater punishment and Jesus tells a story that confirms this sort of idea of graded punishments. Those that follow their flesh. In Galatians 5, you get the works of the flesh. You get in Romans 8, 7, 8, that, that those who follow the flesh are hostile to the law of God and cannot please him. And then despising his lordship. The word for authority there is curiates from the word curios, the Lord. So they're despising lordship and everything that overthrows the truth is seeking personally to overthrow the rule of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Romans 13, just as Peter does in 1 Peter 2:13, that all authority has been delegated from God. We are to obey. 
when we obey the civil authorities, when we obey our parents, when we obey those put over us, we are obeying God who has, He has given that authority in this world. When we obey our elders in the church, we are obeying the voice of God in a certain sense. They're not perfect. They can be off base. We have to listen to them with our Bibles open. But when those authorities speak in a way that does not contradict God's Word, we must honor their authority. And false teaching always undermines authority, proper authority of one form or another. Just check it out. Now, lastly, so what? Let me mention four things about the judgment of God. First of all, we must live in the fear and love of God. We would be off balance and not even understand the love of God if we said, I'm just going to live in the love of God. I'm not going to live in the fear of God. Like R.C. Sproul says, if you don't fear God, you're stupid. Because God is fearsome. He's awesome. That's who He is. So if you know Him, you will by natural reaction fear Him. Because you know Him as He is. Our God is an awesome God. He's a, he is a fearful God. He's also your Father. He loves you with a tender love. So we must be sure that we're thinking rightly about God and living before Him circumspectly because we love Him, but because we also revere Him. We, we're in awe of Him. Secondly, we must warn our neighbors. And uh, that doesn't mean we put up a gospel blimp, you know, repent, you know, turn or burn, you know, <laughs> drop brochures on every, you know, put them in everybody's briefcase, you know, when they go off on their trip, you know, uh, about God's judgment. No, it doesn't mean that we're silly about it, but it means there's a gravity to everything in life for us. And with respect to our neighbors, our chief concern is they come to know Jesus Christ and they hear the message of judgment because they are in Sodom. And they need to know that fire and brimstone is coming. That may sound silly. It only sounds silly if you don't believe it. And it did sound silly to those in Sodom. And the flood sounded silly because they didn't believe it. But if you believe it, it's not silly. It's the truth. And if we love our neighbors, we're helping them avoid judgment. Thirdly, we must not judge one another. Why? Because when you judge another person, not in the sense that you're, you're judging their behavior, as parents, you have to judge the behavior of your children. Uh, as a judge, you have to judge the behavior of the citizens. That's your job. And in fellowship, Christian fellowship, we judge each other's behaviors. But we don't judge in the sense of individually taking on the authority to pronounce where someone's going, heaven or hell, and treating them that way censoriously. Why? Because you displace God. That's his role. And God is, gonna, God is the ultimate judge, and we must not take his place by having a judgmental, censorious attitude toward other people. And lastly, we must not fear anyone or anything but God. If we believe in the judgment, then we fear Him and we receive from Him the gospel of salvation. What is salvation from? Well, in Exodus 15, it was a, it was a celebration of salvation from the water of the Red Sea in Exodus 13 and 14. In Jonah... It was salvation from the sea, by the whale. That's where salvation gets used. In, in the prophets, it was salvation from the Midianites, bloodthirsty enemies. In the New Testament, it's salvation from God's judgment. And so that's what salvation is all about. And we must not fear anyone or anything. So your courage today, as you walk out of here, with respect to every man in this world, 
and everything in this world, including the devil himself. Don't fear him. All he can do is kill you, says Jesus. But fear God because he can kill you and throw you into hell. So when you, what you'll find is the greatest solution for fearing men and being intimidated is get your fear straight onto God and fear him alone. And when you fear him alone, you will not fear other men. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching by the Apostle Peter. We thank you that you did in that day rescue and spare men from false teaching. They were saying that the judgment is never coming. Please spare us from the same in our own day and spare us from all the other false teachings that's all around us and particularly in our own hearts. Things that we entertain about you or about your world or about your plan of salvation that are just figments of our imagination. Please strip those from us that we may think rightly about who you are and what you have done for us and will do for us in the days ahead. May we be the Noahs and the Lots of our own day who are saved from the judgment that this world deserves. And may we be the ones like Noah who are preachers of righteousness, who really sought to help our neighbors. Bless us now, O Lord, as we go, that we may have feared nothing or no one but you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.